Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Chad Norman, Interactive Communications Manager here at BlackBot and your host for this nonprofit technology podcast. This is episode 33 for February 2nd, 2010. Today is Groundhog's Day, and I'm really excited, but not at the prospect of winter being over, but to be kicking off season four of the podcast. Melly and I recorded the first episode way back in March of 2007, and I love what the show has grown into. I just want to send a quick shout out to everyone who's been listening and all the amazing guests that we've had over the years. I'm really looking forward to 2010. On today's show, we'll be taking a look at how nonprofits can raise more money online using independent fundraising events. Bake sale, anyone? But before we ceremoniously cut the bunt cake, let's meet today's panel. Coming back to us from Reston, Virginia, it's the social media outreach coordinator, Danielle Brigida. Welcome, Danielle. Ah, thank you. It's great to be back, Chad. Yes, I'm glad that you could be with us for another season, and um, your insights are always amazing. <laughs> glad to have you back. Well, thank you. Yes. Also joining us is Mark Davis, the Director of Technical Solutions here at BlackBot. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. From Event360 is Megan Dankovich, the Director of Consulting. Welcome, Megan. Hi, thanks for having me. And we have two great guests today from the Michael J. Fox Foundation. We have Megan Shackleton, the Team Fox Officer. Welcome, Megan. Thank you. And her partner in crime, Dana Ypri. Welcome, Dana. Thank you. So today I just wanted to kick off the show talking about independent fundraising events. It's been a big topic here at BlackBot recently. We've uh, recently published a white paper, and that's sort of why Mark and Megan are here. So before we get going into that, I, I want to just quickly off the top, can you tell our listeners what an independent fundraising event is? I'll take that one. Uh, this is Megan with Event360. I'll go by Megan D if that helps. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, an independent fundraising event is basically an activity or an effort that a volunteer volunteers to do in order to raise money on behalf of a nonprofit of their choice. And this is done very grassroots, and it's typically done by someone who has a very direct connection with the cause that they're trying to advocate for and fundraise for. And it's done within their realm of network, so their friends, their family, um, people who are within their reach in their local area, typically. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, Mark, um, you and Megan initiated a research study and published a white paper on your findings around independent fundraising events. Why did you take this on? Actually, it was a, a bit of a um, brainchild of, of both staff at Event360 as well as uh, some of us here at BlackBot, who were starting to take a look at some organizations like, for instance, uh, the Michael J. Fox Foundation, the Team Fox team, who were doing some wonderful things in terms of how they were uh, using online tools and websites and email to uh, cultivate these third-party or independent fundraisers and really raising, starting to raise a significant amount of money online. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to take a look at all of those different organizations doing something online to try to understand some of the best practices uh, and, and hopefully educate the marketplace that uh, this is a, a type of fundraising activity or type of fundraising program that really almost any organization can adopt. Mm-hmm. And it's something that they shouldn't be scared of. That makes a lot of sense. They're really approachable events and, uh, you know, really uh, bring people into your cause in, in a strong way. What's sort of the history behind these events? I mean, have, have they been going on for a long time? Have they always been part of fundraising? Or is this just something that technology is enabling now more than ever? I would say, this is Megan D, that organizations have probably been benefiting from these types of volunteers for quite some time now. But the way it usually works is they receive a check in the mail and a, and a letter that says, hi, I'm Jane Smith from Chicago, Illinois, and 
my mother had cancer and I decided to have a bake sale on here's a check of all the money I raised because I wanted to help you out. Right. Well, that's wonderful. But what that doesn't tell us is, you know, a little bit more about Jane Smith and a little bit more about what she did and why she did it and a little bit more about who even helped her and made those donations. So the organization as a whole can better understand, wow, well, maybe there's another market out there that we're not reaching that we could be reaching or that we could be doing more for. But I, I think that we're finding that there's been organized programs by the nonprofits themselves around these types of super volunteers, only more so in the last three to five years, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And then technology has definitely caught up and has been to the point in the past three or four years where they've, they now have solutions that can help those super volunteers. Now, what is the most common type of event that we see out there? I think we see a lot of nonprofits finding athletes who say, I'm going to run a marathon. I'd love to raise funds for you. That's quite common to have those athletic um, folks who step up. And they feel it's very justified because they're doing a lot of exertion on their end, right? They're doing a lot of training, um, a lot of preparation for that. But then you also have these other folks who perhaps that type of activity or even the types of activity that the traditional fundraising events organization already offers just doesn't mix, mix well with them or just doesn't resonate well with them. And they're wanting to incorporate their passion with your mission in a way that's very unique to them. And so we see everything from bake sales and garden walks to golf tournaments and softball tournaments and kayaking. You name it, we, we basically heard it and saw it. It's completely up to that super volunteer and what resonates most well with them. What's one of the strangest events that you've ever seen? Wow, hard to pick. One that we added, uh, we thought was really uh, intriguing that we added in the white paper was a garden walk. Uh, that um, was is a part of the Team Fox group. So I don't know if uh, if uh, Megan uh, Megan Shackleton Megan S I guess if you want, <laughs> want maybe want to explain um, what I think her name was Mary Ann and that Garden Walk is all about. Yeah. Mary Ann Estranga has been one of our uh, Team Fox members since the program started, and um, as as Mark was saying, she did exactly she actually did exactly as Megan was just describing. She took her passion for gardening and turned it into a fundraiser. So she created the Team Fox Garden Walk in um, based out of her home in Chicago, Illinois. She got a number of different um, different gardens in the area to volunteer to be a part of her garden walk. And um, it started raising a few thousand dollars. And within several years, she's now raising upwards of $50,000 through her event. Um, and it's just been wow. a huge success. She's incorporated a reception and really has found ways to, to engage her community to um, make it right. make it stronger and more successful. Now, has an event like that, has it taken on a life of its own in the community, like you said? Like it grew out of a small personal effort, but now is it sort of something that people look forward to and people know is going to happen every year? It definitely is. I think yeah. the mayor actually even did a proclamation that there was an official day in honor of it in the town of Naperville, Illinois. <laughs> um, so it really has gone far beyond just Marianne. And it's a huge community effort. And there's it's just unbelievable the, the people and support that she's gotten involved that were, that have no connection to her personally that now are part of this, this unbelievable event. Yeah, that is so cool. So what makes these events so compelling? Is it the personal aspect of the events? This is Dana. I think so. I think it goes back to what Megan D was saying, that a lot of the people who are hosting these events and participating in these events have a personal connection. So if you know somebody who has a personal connection, that becomes your connection as well. And so you're driven to, to attend the event and to support the event financially. So I think that's what's really helping these events be so successful is that everyone starts to feel a connection to, to the cause. I have a question. Since, uh, you know, I work with the National Wildlife Federation and we've 
recently actually signed on with Event 360 because we're really we're really interested in this new model. Are you seeing a lot of nonprofits kind of sign on, some bigger, some smaller, who who are interested in a new revenue stream? We're hearing more and more clients be interested in formalizing and organizing a program around it for sure. Yeah, and and really, it's because they're they're acknowledging that these people are the reason why they even came to be about, right? It's, it's they're the reason why they even formed their organization was to help exactly these people. And why wouldn't you want to engage these folks in a special way, in a unique way? Why wouldn't you want to have a program that celebrates them and really recognizes them for that 110% that they're giving? Because this, this isn't like they're paying a reg fee and attending the walk and maybe raising a couple hundred dollars. This is them spending months of their time either preparing or training or planning and then incorporating everybody within their reach that the organization would never otherwise have been able to touch themselves. So um, I think they realize more and more organizations are definitely realizing the benefit of that. Uh, I just want to kind of add something to that. I mentioned early on about this concept of we wanted to make sure organizations weren't scared of these types of programs. And, and what I meant by that is when we took a look at the folks, uh, when Megan and I interviewed and took a look at a lot of, a lot of organizations, a lot of these organizations, uh, there was a mix. Some organizations were really adopting these programs, and other organizations weren't so much. And in particular, talking about the organizations who already had these already large events, national-based events, national walks that they were sponsored by the event. And the idea is that these independent fundraising events were found to be very complementary because it was an additional outlet that these super volunteers could take on and from a fundraising and from an activity perspective. Exactly. I guess for me, you know, it's it's in large part numbers because I, I'm, I love people and, you know, I get to make friends for a living. But it seems like the people who are most successful in this, you know, genre of fundraising are the health organizations. And, you know, they attract a certain audience and the longer they're around, the bigger they are, it seems like. I'm interested to know if there are other organizations who have really mastered it besides the health ones. That and the service community ones. Right, service, yeah. Right, right. Um, those are the top. I, I can't say that I've seen um, environmentally based organizations act on this as much. That's because we all want streaming. We don't want hundreds of us hiking through the woods as much as we you know, love mm-hmm. that and just trample all the wildlife on the way. <laughs> Um, we don't spend a lot of time doing best practices with organizations that are thinking about launching programs similar to Team Fox. And one group we've done some work with is ASPCA. So I know they're it's still in the early phases, but they're they've sort of launched a community fundraising effort as well. And they're a non-health based organization. Well, what if there's a nonprofit out there listening and they're they're interested in getting a program like this going and an event like this going? What do they need to to look at to get started? Right. Well, great question. And what we say in our white paper and outline in the white paper is what we found in talking with the six clients is that it doesn't take a whole lot. If they already have a system set up, uh, they could use that uh, by setting up a web page, directing people to that web page. We all we strongly encourage online communication and online. Um, setup of tools and such because number one, it's a less expensive way uh, to communicate, and number two, it allows the organization to do better data tracking. Mm-hmm. And and in terms of supporting these folks, we strongly encourage that they have an email and a name and someone who's willing to answer the phone and be a voice on the other end for the super volunteer. But we we don't think that you really need more than a half to a full time employee to help get that event kicked off. Many of the organizations we spoke to in the, as part of this research program don't even have a full FTE. You know, that right. the people who are assigned to this program 
you know, half their time is spent on other projects within the organization as well. I assume that's one of the benefits of, of events like this is that you're sort of distributing the work to your community. Well, exactly. And yeah. so there's definitely a lower cost of fundraising associated with it. I do think having the person on the other line or the person that's there to answer the questions and provide support is crucial. And it can or may or may not involve staff or direct staffing role based on your structure. We've seen that we have had to increase our staff. We have three full-time staff dedicated to the program. And we don't intend to grow anymore because we've actually started working with our members to leverage our experienced members to provide support to one another through a mentoring program that we actually modeled after Livestrong's mentor program. So I think as you grow, there are ways to leverage your member base to provide that same support, but that the staff support really is one of the number one things to, to really make it a successful program. And it's what we hear time and again from our members that set us apart is the fact that there's somebody on the other, on the other, on the other line that can answer any of their questions and can really help them get started. Well, it sounds like tools are really important to the successful event. What other types of tools do you give your fundraisers? The main thing that we provide them with, like Megan said, is um, contact with our staff. Mm -hmm. And then from there, they each get a personal fundraising page, which um, they all seem to appreciate and for the most part actively use. Um, And they're able to personalize their page and set a fundraising goal and direct their supporters to that page. So that we consider a pretty big thing. We also send out um, a welcome packet to each member that joins. And each member also gets a welcome call just to ensure that they're getting, you know, as many personal touches as they can get so that they feel like they're part of the program and part of the community um, and that we are available to help them sort of kick things off. On our website, we also have a headquarters area, which um, has different documents that they're able to have access to once they're a member. And it includes um, a sample fundraising letter, a sample press release, in some cases, a how-to guide, for instance, how to put on a golf fundraiser or how to host a Pancakes for Parkinson's events. So just some basic documents to really get them started. And we also provide for all of our members, we have a materials request form. So for each event that's held, all of our members are able to have Team Fox banners, Team Fox brochures, any sort of collateral from the foundation that would be helpful in them having messaging at the actual event. And I think one big thing also is the use of the brand. We created Team Fox as a separate brand from the Michael J. Fox Foundation, but it has its own logo. We allow our members to use that logo on their promotional pieces. Um, in their language. And I think it really helps them with their efforts to be able to tie back to a specific group and to be a part of this greater Team Fox community that's benefiting the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Right. I do want to get back to the technology in a second, but what do you guys do sort of post-event to either communicate back to your fundraisers, to really steward them along and make sure that they know that they're appreciated? That's a big thing for us, um, retention and making sure that our members have a good experience in that. If they run a marathon one year, they can run a marathon the next year. Or if they don't want to run a marathon, maybe they want to host a bake sale or Mm -hmm. they want to do another event. So post-event follow-up is equally important to us as pre-event preparation. Um, We like to follow up after each event to see how everything went. We're big on collecting photos as well so that we can post them to our blog. So we just make sure they know they're appreciated and um, that we value however much money they raise. And I think there's, we also work hard. We don't have a specific incentive program with specific levels or getting certain points, but we do have a major event every year called the MVP Awards Dinner which um, we invite our top fundraisers to. It'll be about almost the top half of our fundraisers, or about a third of them. Um, that's a really nice dinner in New York. Michael J. Fox attends, and it's really just our way of thanking them in person for what they've done. 
Um, and it's we hosted around a major nationwide Parkinson's event called Unity Walk. And we hear very frequently that it is what re-inspires people to get involved. Not just, really, it's not even because of Michael or the dinner. It's really because they get the chance to meet one another. Right. And are That's so cool. inspired by hearing each other's stories that yeah. it, often collaborations come out of it. People come out wanting to work together. People who have never thought about running a marathon decide they're, they're going to do the marathon because they see that community. It really just helps generate new ideas and just fosters the community further. And I have a question sort of for the whole panel. So say someone's raising, you know, a good bit of money, you know, 25 grand, 50 grand, whatever it may be. Does that sort of put them into a different class as a fundraiser? I mean, I know they're involved with the event fundraising, but does that sort of put them into major gift status? You know what I mean? Do they started to get treated differently like they themselves brought in the 50 grand? For Team Fox, we really pride ourselves on providing the same level of support to somebody who's doing a lemonade stand to somebody who's, okay. you know, our largest fundraiser last year was um, raised. It was full of Parkinson's last year. Well, anyway, regardless of what the fundraiser is, we pride ourselves on providing the same level of support to all of our members. But that being said, when the funders are at a higher level in the fifty, seventy-five hundred thousand dollar level, we do try and make sure there's a staff member that's able to attend. We 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 go out of our way to try and visit to have them get visited by other staff members when they're in town. So we do sort of put them a little bit more into the major gifts pool in terms of the stewardship aspect of it. But in terms of the event support, we really try and ensure that all of our members receive that support. Let's talk a little bit about the technology that you use. As far as like the website, what's going on on the website as far as personal fundraising pages and things like that? Is that is that critical to the success of this program? It definitely is. As Dana mentioned, the, the fundraising page is essential to the program. Yeah. I think especially for our athletes, I think it's slightly different for people who are planning physical events, but for athletes that are raising funds, it's crucial to their efforts. Almost all of them do that online and direct people to their fundraising page. But I think all of our members appreciate that they have it available. We've actually started encouraging members to have a laptop with wireless access at their events nice. to make people more likely to make donations on the spot. Not everyone carries cash around right. and most people have credit cards. That's so a great idea. It, yeah, and it's, that's seen a lot of success. Um, so we really think that, that the, the site itself, people having their own personal fundraising page is crucial in the success of the program overall. Um, and I think just in general, having a hub, as Dana was explaining with the headquarters, just having sort of a hub for all of their efforts. Not all of our members use the email center, but those that do are happy to have that option as well. But I think that really comes down to the fundraising page being the, the crucial component. Mark, Megan D? Uh, in terms of the, um, the participants, there were six participants actually uh, in the research project. And there are really two technology options that uh, they use depending on really the, the complexity of the program and their underlying requirements around whether or not the, they wanted to build a really of a more robust type of community or stick to just fundraising. And th those options were really our, our standard friends asking friends, which actually the majority of the customers used. Benefits are uh, easy to deploy. Of nice, simple templates for individuals to set up their own personal page. It, it is integrated with social media technologies like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, but it's more of a fun, I would consider it an option for organizations who want to start quickly with the program and really keep that program kind of more fundraising focused. Uh, they don't really want to build, I mean, one of the things that Team Fox is so great at is they have really a community. Their fundraisers have generated a community. But for a lot of these other organizations, the fundraisers are spread across the country, and there really wasn't a, a real cohesive community being built around. So they went through, they, they used standard friends asking friends. Mm -hmm. Now, Team Fox, and interestingly enough, 
several of the uh, participants of the research project looked at Team Fox and are now looking to adopt uh, what's called the custom friends asking friends option. And this option is much more flexible in terms of look and feel, user experience, uh, design elements around the personal page. And, uh, and Team Fox is a great example. Uh, they've been able to use that flexibility to create a more community type of environment, merging in blog posting and that type of more interactive content, and really letting these personal pages be, obviously they're going to have fundraising, uh, a level of fundraising focus, but it's not the only focus. People are able to share, upload videos. They're able to talk about the event and able to do more than just literally say why they're fundraising and get people to immediately make a donation. So those are the two options. Um, and I think uh, you've got a standard one for organizations who want to start up really quickly, uh, perhaps at low cost. Uh, and you have a more advanced one uh, that allows for more heavy customization and the ability to create really a more robust community online. And I do think that the community aspect, as Mark was saying, is huge. And I think it's something that when Dana and I came into this role, we were really focused on. Team Fox had always been called Team Fox, but there was really very little team aspect to it or community feel. So we've really worked to, as Mark said, leverage the tools that BlackBot provides, as well as sort of the greater online networking systems to really make people feel like they're part of a community. We're based in New York City. We have no chapters. We're never going to have chapters. Right. But yet we have over a 1,000 members all over the world that are, are a part of this team. And so we've really worked to, to leverage Facebook and Twitter and the Team Fox blog and our uh, the, the site itself to build that community, make people feel like they're connected not only to Team Fox but to one another. And it's really, I think, we almost feel like we're in this fortunate seat where we hear these incredible stories day in and day out, but we realize there was a huge disconnect between us hearing it and all of our members being able to hear the same thing. And they're the ones who need the inspiration, not us. And so it's, <laughs> it's been just unbelievable the response we've gotten to just posting, as you were saying, follow up from people's events. We put them on the blog. It makes them feel incredible that they're featured and it inspires other people to want to do the same thing. And so it's sort of taking that effect that the MVP awards has in one night in one room and brings it online that everyone can experience throughout the year and, and always feel connected to Team Fox. And it's really had a significant impact, I, I believe. What sort of percentage does Team Fox make up of the, the overall fundraising effort of the foundation? It is definitely just one of the um, revenue streams at the foundation. I think we're at a total of $170 million, um, research funded by the foundation since we launched, since we were founded in 2000. But Team Fox um, was actually launched by the foundation in 2006. So it's one of the younger revenue cool. streams. Yeah. And um, each year we grow and grow, as um, Megan was just saying. And this year, our final number was at 2.97 in the end. Nice. And we've raised over $8 million to date through Team Fox alone. Um, but our annual budget for the foundation is more in the $30 million range. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's less than a tenth of our overall revenue. Okay. But the way we in the foundation and Michael especially think about Team Fox is that the dollars that come in through Team Fox are so much more significant. Well, at least we think so, <laughs> um, are so much more significant because of the awareness factor that's involved and the empowerment that's involved. I think people have been coming to Michael since the day he announced he had his disease wanting to help, and now there's something they can do. And each person that does an event, every dollar that comes in from is, is typically coming in from a new donor. It's somebody who wouldn't have supported the foundation otherwise. It's somebody who wouldn't have known about the foundation otherwise. And it's somebody who now potentially will do another fundraiser and will be a part of the Team Fox community and the Team Fox family, even if it just means coming to an event once a year they're now part of the Team Fox community. And it, so I think that the awareness that's associated with the dollars that come in through a program like Team Fox is, 
it's literally invaluable. There's no way we can ever judge what that does. And so I think we think about that 10% of the dollars being leveraged a thousand times over right, because yeah. of the additional benefits that come from it. Now that makes total sense. While we're talking about numbers, Mark and Megan, do you want to go into some of the data maybe you found in your study? So out of the six organizations, most of them were, were willing to share the data with us. And what we found was that Again, back to my comment earlier about starting to actually track it perhaps in the last three to four years, but what we found was only about two and a half years of complete data for us to to really get our hands on and and to look at. So while it's great that we had about 30,000 donors and about 4,000 individual fundraiser um, data fields to look at, we only had about two and a half years to look to compare. So it's it's very difficult to trend um, over two and a half years. But there was still enough to be able to very loud and clearly tell us that even between 07 and 08, the amount of revenue, the increase in participation, and increase in number of donors had incrementally, excuse me, exponentially in, increased just in that one year alone. So there's, it's certainly gaining momentum, and the data said that loud and clear. Um, some of the things that, that came out of this in terms of um, – qualitatively, because we did both the quantitative and the qualitative research, uh, is again that most of these people have a very direct connection to the cause and they really appreciated the tools that the organization was providing to them because they felt that by having that participant page, by having that community, by having that support, that they were able to more effectively communicate what their efforts were to more effectively coordinate what they were trying to do and then overall at the end of the day raise more money. So if nothing else, you know, even though we had limited data and only had about, there's about 100 or so people who, re- who actually re- uh, responded to our survey, it was great great to get that feedback from them in terms of being actual fundraisers and volunteers, you know, from their end. But yeah, overwhelmingly, they, they were really excited about what they were doing about the tools that they were being provided. I think some, some of the ob- observations that we saw in addition to that were uh, individuals, these super- Started starting to quantify uh, what the value of these individuals were compared to, for instance, for some of these health organizations, they're more quote unquote traditional events. I think one interesting tidbit was uh, during our conference, uh, we presented, co presented with uh, Sarah Hall at Canadian Cancer Society. And she had never even thought about analyzing that before, frankly. And she was surprised to find out that compared to her Relay for Life, that uh, these individuals who are supporting her independent fundraising events were actually raising on average about five times more uh, than, than the typical Relay for Life customer, wow. which, which was pretty significant. And, and we saw the same thing in an earlier analysis for, for Lance Armstrong Foundation, who, who not only has a grassroots fundraising, but also has a challenge event, which historically is a, uh, a high uh, fundraising type of activity. Uh, but even in that situation, where you have a high fundraising activity like a challenge event, the independent fundraisers were raising significantly more. And a key piece we started talking to some of these organizations about is we, what do you do with the donor data afterwards? Because a, uh, the online tools really turns, a say, a $2,000 wraparound check from a bake sale, which is just one check with no donor data, you could conceivably have now several hundred donors in the database that come uh, that come across from some of these events, and it was a, it was it was mixed. A, l- a lot of the organizations uh, that we had were using the Razor's Edge or Team Approach, 
and and they were able to obviously ha- have that data sink into the, into the systems and and be able to append existing donor data or recognize potential new donors. Um, several of those organizations did year-end campaigns to target those donors uh, to try to see if they could p- potentially migrate them to be uh, a donor tied to this particular volunteer, to being a supporter of the organization as a whole. It was a bit of a mixed bag in terms of how organizations were doing, but having that having and having this data specifically at the volunteer level and not not to mention at the donor data at the donor level uh, is very important to all these organizations because you want to be able to identify these these super these super fundraisers in your core data system uh, so that you could communicate to them appropriately, uh, offer them some sort of programs, and 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 obviously obviously interact with them in an appropriate way. Not terribly dissimilar. I know we already talked about this earlier, but not terribly dissimilar as if they were a major gift, potential major gift fundraiser. Right. And again, going back to the the donor data, as Mark was saying, some clients or some of the organizations do do campaigns with them once they have them in their system, whereas uh, some others, their fundraisers, their independent fundraiser fundraiser strongly um, requested that the organization itself not reach out to those donors because they felt that it would kind of take away from their efforts. So they, they were being good about honoring that. In those cases, they were offering an opt-in or an opt-out option to the donor. So when the donor would place an online donation, they would say, would you like would you like to receive information from us? Would you like to opt into, opt into the newsletter? And oftentimes, the intended fundraiser was okay with that because they felt like at least it was giving that donor the option. Another piece of that, too, is for some of these organizations that have a central headquarters where they may be operating and managing this independent fundraising program out of, they also have these chapters out and you know across the United States. And what they would do is they would do a bit of a tandem management job. So they would inform those affiliates when there would be an ISC in their backyard and give them the opportunity to reach out to them, it's not to try to cannibalize anything, not to try to steal away from any of their efforts, but literally to offer extra support. And as Megan S. had remarked earlier, you know, if it's someone who's doing a phenomenal job, they might be able to attend their event and show their support even in that way. Um, and again, I mean, one of the things, the biggest things that came out of this data analysis in particular, and I think that really resonated with our audience at the conference, is that this is a very low cost of fundraising um, program to have. Um, on, on the average, it's about 15 cents of the dollar. So when you look at that across the rest of your of, of the fundraising portfolio, that's extremely attractive. That's lower than any other fundraising methodology on average out there. Cool. Um, while we're talking about these events, I was wondering if anybody has seen any uh, independent fundraising events popping up to raise money for Haiti. Has that been part of the uh, fundraising effort? I read an article about a boy in the UK who, I think he planned a bike ride, yeah, and it raised over $100,000, maybe even over $200,000, something Whoa. crazy. His, his original goal was $800. <laughs> Amazing. And he clearly pulled it off very quickly because yeah. it's already... Occurred. Uh-huh. I think it was in time. Look it up. Well, great. there's uh, the, the actually on January 18th, one of our customers called Project MetaShare launched one of those uh, quick launch uh, friends asking friends sites, and uh, within less than a week, raised over four hundred thousand wow. dollars online. Wow. Simply because I'm a basketball and an ex Charlotte Hornets fan, I have to point out that Alonzo Mourning mm-hmm. uh, of Miami Heat and, of course, Charlotte. Uh, Hornets mm-hmm. uh, fame uh, and Georgetown fame is uh, ranked fifth as a top fundraiser. Wow! So uh, that's a that's a great site. It's uh, available on projectmetashare.contera.org. 
Uh, and it's just a, one of the standard friends asking friends. You can go online. You can set up a team and uh, really do uh, either a physical fundraising or, or allow people to do uh, like a physical event fundraising or allow people just to do virtual fundraising as well, mm-hmm. which is another type of independent fundraising event. Um, doesn't have to necessarily have to have a physical piece. But I think from a disaster relief perspective, I saw Project MetaShare and also another one uh, that activated was called Team Heifer. Interna- Heifer Project International, uh, obviously, organization that does a lot of year-end campaigns, but they actually have an annual independent fundraising event uh, community that they build. It's called Team Heifer. You can Google that and find it. And uh, that that they they activate uh, those fundraisers whenever there is a disaster or something that's in the news like that. That obviously they can uh, help raise money and provide support for. Uh, so that's the second organization. And, and a third one that popped up, which I thought was interesting as well, is Habitat for Humanity. Mm-hmm. Also uh, set up a uh, Friends Asking Friends uh, independent fundraising event campaign the day of uh, the disaster and was raising money, obviously, for building materials and what have you. So I think those are three organizations that we saw pop up uh, and either existing um, – the, the concept around Heifer is that they have this existing group of super volunteers – that they activate in these times of uh, obviously distress and disaster, as well as other organizations who quickly launch uh, from a rapid response standpoint and quickly launch these fundraising applications. Those are those are two models that I've that I've seen activated and used for the Haiti disaster relief. That seems to be one of the cool things about these events is that they can get up and running so quickly versus you know traditional events where you got to spend so many months planning it. It's perfect for disaster relief. Mm-hmm. So leaving sort of uh, independent fundraising events behind, what do you guys think were some of the big NP tech stories that came out of Haiti? Obviously, mobile giving was a big story. Social media played a big part. Did, did anything catch your eye? I mean, I found it amazing that uh, Wendy Harmon was helping rescue people from using Twitter. I just, I, I don't know. People were tweeting from under buildings and things, and she was saving them. So oh, Wow. That's, uh, I can't wait. We're, hopefully, we'll have her on the show uh, in two weeks, and I cannot wait to hear all about that. <laughs> I know. She may actually have a different story, but I, just, I was in San Francisco during a lot of what was going on with Haiti, and we were getting, like, help, help me tweets from her because she was getting – such an okay. um, such a crazy uh, flood of tweets. Well, I can imagine the Red Cross feed would be, uh, you know, quite the beacon to reach out to during yeah. during a, a, an event like this. I don't think she's left work. Yeah, yeah I imagine she hasn't. <laughs> um, yeah, I really, I really liked what Net Hope was doing too. I mean, uh, they uh, they go down, they put uh, build infrastructure in developing areas, and they were able to get down there and and put uh, get technology built back up and try to help with the relief efforts. Help a lot of organizations that were down there on the ground actually be able to communicate and, and get their job done. Um, when you think about how hard that would be without telephone lines and internet and anything like that, we've become so dependent on it. Yeah, it's just crazy how, uh, you know, with, without that, even disaster recovery efforts would be even, even more difficult. Yeah. Did you hear about the iPhone app that saved the guy? No. Um, in Haiti, the Haiti Rebel? Well, it was basically, um, there's a, a health iPhone app you can download for like three ninety nine, and it saved him, I think. Um, how, how so? Well, he had he had wounds, I okay. guess, that he had to to dress himself, and uh-huh. so he used his iPhone app and wow. <laughs> basically fixed himself right up. It's like, what can't the iPhone do? It's, po- <laughs> it's pocket first aid or That's something right. like that. I don't know. I just I, I immediately went and downloaded the app, and right. so did a bunch of my friends. I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't mind spending three ninety nine on something that could save my life. No doubt. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, um, anybody? If nobody has anything else to add, um, just like to go around the the horn and get some shout outs 
Um, I can start with uh, Megan and Dana from uh, Team Fox. Do you have anything you'd like to uh, plug regarding the foundation or Team Fox? I would just encourage people to check out the website, teamfox.org, or our blog is blog.teamfox.org. Um, or you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter, facebook.com slash teamfox or twitter.com slash teamfox. We would love to have people get involved. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show. Megan D. Yeah. So, Megan, Megan D., do you have anything uh, you'd like to plug for our listeners? I would love for people to come to our website and download the white paper that Mark and I had had done together on part of this, as part of this project. You get also from the Blackboard website. But um, we'd love for you to visit event360.com as well and learn more about what we do. We're a fundraising company that specializes in events. You know, I think we have an awful lot to, to offer from our experience in this realm. And, and so I'd invite people to come check us out online. Well, yeah, I appreciate you being on the show today. And again, that URL for the uh, white paper is blackbaud.com slash IFE. And that'll take you right there where you can download it and check out an event as well. I think we have a web seminar tomorrow. Mark, maybe that's what you're going to be referring to. Yes. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I want to do a plug out to our, our six customers, organizations okay. who helped us with this uh, project. Uh, we mentioned a few of them, but I definitely want to make sure they're all mentioned. Alzheimer's Association, Autism Speaks. Canadian Cancer Society, Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation, Lance Armstrong Foundation, and obviously our friends at Team Fox. All, all six of, of them were, were excellent and actually have now formed um, a good bit of a, a user, a, a little mini user group in terms of they now all uh, connect with each other and share best practices. And I know I think, Megan, hopefully you were mm -hmm. able to reach out with Colleen just a couple of days ago at Lance Armstrong Foundation. So hopefully um, they found uh, the whole project uh, as, as exciting as it is informative and interesting as uh, Megan D and I, and uh, I, f I found it it was uh, it was amazing to uh, have such a wonderful conversations and 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 build stronger relationships with all six of them. And for those of you out there who may be interested in learning a little bit more, Megan D and myself will be uh, making a presentation tomorrow uh, on a webinar raising more money online from independent fundraising events. Uh, you can register online with that same uh, URL that Chad just mentioned. I'm sure he'll repeat just a second. And it's a, it's at 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, and it should be about an hour. And uh, you'll, you'll get to hear uh, the results of the, uh, of, the, um, of the white paper, as well as a bit of a case study on Canadian Cancer Society. Great. Thanks for being on the show, Mark. That's good stuff. And again, that URL is blackbot.com slash IFE. You can go there. And if you if you don't make it to the web seminar prior to the event actually occurring, there will be um, downloadable archive information there as well. So Danielle, what's going on at the uh, National Wildlife Federation? You always have fun things to give shout outs to. I know, I know. Well, actually, um, right now, most of my time has been prepping for National Wildlife Week, which is not until March 15th through the 21st, but yeah. um, the website is up there, so National Wildlife Week. Um, NWF got a new website while we were away, so that's very exciting. If you go to nwf.org, um, you can check it out. There's not as much social media as I hope there will be in the future, <laughs> but there is some, so definitely check it out and, and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash nwf or twitter.com slash starfocus, because that's my That's name. you. That's right. <laughs> and I forgot to also mention the uh, Netwitch Think Tank uh, blog. That's uh, where you can find some of Mark's content. So. But, uh, Danielle, thanks for being on the show again. And, uh, of course. Look forward to next I week. learned a ton. Yeah, yeah I agree. Really good. So. This was great. Yeah, thank you to you all. Well, that does it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Danielle Brigida, Mark Davis, Megan Dankovich, Megan Shackleton, and Dana Ipri. 
You can keep up with the podcast and other webby things by following me on Twitter at twitter.com slash chadnorman or by checking out my blog at blackbod.com slash webby things. If any of you listeners have feedback, please send us an email at thebodcast at blackbod.com. Until next time, I'm Chad Norman, and thanks for listening to the podcast. Just the way it goes. Don't worry about it. That's what Post is for. We'll, we'll fix it all. Yeah. It's all good. He makes, he makes me sound so much better right after. I mean, <laughs> Take I out all I your ums and ahs. I sound and like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. I sound so eloquent. But, uh, yeah. Chad, can you add a little bass on mine? <laughs> yeah, yours is, yours is pretty tinny. I don't know I'll, what's yeah, up with that. I'll hold mine a little, like, you know, really, like, deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll do. I'll do what I can. <laughs> I appreciate it. Okay. Sound like George Clooney? Would that work? No. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Give me a second. You're yeah, gonna. Okay. You're gonna. You're obviously gonna cut all this. Well, it depends. If it's funny enough, I'll put it in the outtakes at the end of the episode. <laughs>